Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to the Digging Deeper podcast, episode 86. We dig deep into topics and questions each week to discover what the Bible says. In this episode, my guest Shane Willard continues the exploration of a healthier understanding of human sexuality. Shane looks at six tensions in scripture that help us navigate sex and sexuality. What are these six tensions? Let's find out. Do a a quick recap. Give me a 60-second pricey of what you covered last week. Oh, six, oh, great. Um, okay. Uh, let me see, let's see if I could do that. That, that the central application of the book of Romans was to allow part of our imagination of what worshiping God looks like to include being able to accept people without affirming everything they do. That, uh, that the Paul was asking the Jews to accept Gentiles who had no emotional connection to scripture. They actually would have disregarded it, hadn't heard of most of it. Um, And the Jews were using scriptures as weapons against these people. And the Gentiles, on the other hand, were looking down on the Jews because to them, they were living with an outdated sort of consciousness. And that part part of addressing any difficult issue on earth is garnering the humility to be able to um, accept a person while not having to feel pressured to affirm everything about that person, um, allowing space for conversation and 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 growth and um, and then we talked about um, in terms of engaging things in our world, we should see ourselves as the plank and other people as the spec. And we talked through a bit of planks, uh, like purity culture, uh, that we should uh, repent from. And then we closed off last week, um, introducing six tensions, uh, that are a better way to frame, um, discussions around sex than is it right or wrong in or out? Um, can I still go to heaven if I die? If I do, how far can I go and still be accepted? It's, it, there, there are six tensions. And the one we introduced was, um, does my sexual behavior honor the image bearer in the person? Um, or does it objectify them in any way? And we went back to Genesis one and talked about the gift of the image or the Salem of God being gifted to every uh, to every person and how, how that changed the world. It actually, um, it took 300 years um, into Christianity, but it actually started to change Roman law. Um, and we talked about exposure and um, and things like this. And, and uh, our friend Tao made some sort of brilliant um, um, insight about how the word image there is actually a verb about how you interact uh, with your world and bring uh uh, essentially God's presence to your world. And, um, yeah. and, and so, and so the question is, and I, I think that's interesting because one of the ways that I've been taught uh, to read Genesis one um, out of there's 30 ways, but I, I love that about scripture, by the way, too, is I think it's important for us to point out and you point this out all the time that scripture is not meant to be studied to find the one true meaning, but rather explore the endless meanings, um, particularly with parables and poems and, 
and things yes. like this. And so, and we've, we've both had moments where we've sat with someone who gave us a, a different way of reading, say a parable. And we were like, yeah, like, it's, wait, wait, wait. it's wonderful. It, isn't it? It's wonderful. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. You have that and moment so, where you go, Oh my goodness. I've never seen it like that before. That never seen that one. Good. That's yeah. a good one. Um, yeah. I don't even know if I agree, disagree, whatever. It doesn't matter. It, what, what matters is you've got me engaging the text. Um, yes. And one, one of the ways that I was taught to read Genesis 1 um, was that God was building a temple. And the, 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 last thing, uh, the last thing you do when you build a temple is you put the image of the God inside the temple. And, and, and so we were trusted as image bearers. Now, later writers had a, had a, a slightly different take on that where they, they, they called us the body of Christ or like the, the living embodiment of God to our world. And, and so, but either way, the principle is the same and, and it should invoke a question. Like, how are we doing with that? Like how, um, how, how are we at being the source of compassionate grace, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness as Exodus 34, six says that God is, um, you know, how are we doing that without it feeling any indictment from me or you, and and the last thing either one of us would want would be anybody watching this feeling like we're going like that. Um, yeah, no, no, planks, specs. Um, how are we? Um, I'm. How, how are we doing with that? And so that's that's where we ended last week was this idea that um, if we apply that principle to sex, um, how uh, how are we doing um, honoring the image bearer in the person? And the opposite of honoring the image bearer in the person would be to objectify them. And the yep. problem, the problem with objectification sexually is that it never, it, it, it tends not to limit itself to sex. So once you learn to objectify someone in one area, it tends to leak to other areas. Um, and uh, so the next thing you know, that the waitress is an object to serve you. The waiter is an object to serve you. Uh, the person um, behind the counter at the airport, they're an object to serve you instead of a, instead of an image bearer um, who who we're we're there to um, um, be the presence of God for and and that that creates a that's, that creates a pretty awful world if like like one of the ways I like to frame discussions around faith is is that if the whole world converted to think how you're thinking about God would the world be better and right question yeah if, if if the world's not better, uh, then I think there's a problem with with the with the way you're thinking about God, um, and and so and so for this particular topic, I think uh, one way to think about it is if the whole world converted and thought about your own sexuality and other people's sexuality the way you're thinking, would it make the world better? And um, and so let's so to keep this personal because t what tends to happen with any topic, but particularly with this topic, is is people start thinking, oh, they need to hear this. Okay, uh, but but just for a second, um, um, let's 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 look at the plank and say, wait a minute, my sexual behavior does it honor the image bearer or does it objectify? Great question, love it. So that's number one of six. Mm -hmm. What's number two? Two is I think we need to navigate the tension between. And we we alluded to this uh, last week, but is the the, atten the the attention between accepting of a person necessarily meaning affirming everything that person does? Um, frankly, we we just don't we don't do that with anything. Um, I, like I 
I, I spoke at a live event at, at your church the other night and I fully accept everybody there, uh, but I'm sure if I knew everything about each person there, there would be something I wouldn't affirm in terms of their behavior. Um, uh, gluttony is a great example of that. Like I, I fully accept people who struggle with habitual overeating. I fully, fully accept them. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I would affirm eating 5,000 calories a day. I think that will hurt you in the long run. And, and so, and so what happens is on one end of things, um, people refuse to accept others, which Paul clearly called us to do, to accept people that we don't understand, to accept people who don't have the same views as us, to accept people who, in Paul's case, they were just totally disregarding something that would have been very important to Paul, but Paul saw the resurrection of Jesus as something that superseded that. Um, and and but but without having to uh, without having to affirm um, everything about them. And so on one end, there are people who refuse to accept people unless they can affirm all their behavior. And then those people's world gets very 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 small. Like very like a, a, as a, as a speaker, um, I, I've been confronted before. I've, actually, uh, this is a great example of this. This uh, and I want to be fair to this guy if he's watching. I wish the whole world confronted people like you do. Um, um, he was kind. Um, he gave me the benefit of the doubt. He didn't write a letter to, to you about me. He actually looked at my schedule, which is public. He drove to where I was. He then kindly asked me for five minutes of my time after the busyness had died down. He then, he then affirmed what I had meant to his life. He then gave me the benefit of the doubt around this rumor he had heard about me. Um, but he was so bothered by it, he wanted to ask me about it. And so I, I'm like, where's this guy? Like, like, I, like, I want the whole world being like this guy. And he, his, the rumor he had heard was that I had done the Seventh Day Adventist Conference, um, which was true. Um, yeah. It was a absolutely true. Um, and I was the first non-Adventist to be asked to that conference. Um, and so I took that very seriously. I was honored as anything. Um, and, uh, and, and he'd also heard I'd speak for the Catholics in Sydney, which is true. Um, and so, and I said, look, while we're at it, I, I've done the ACC state conferences. I've, I've done, uh, uh, equippers conference. I've done the AOG national conference in New Zealand. Like, like there's, yeah. there's a lot. I've had to wear a robe before Rob. I had to wear a robe and I had to ask, do you wear anything underneath these robes? Like I have to huh. do that. And so, um, and, and so this really bothered him. And, and so I, because he gave me the benefit of the doubt, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. And so I said, I said, man, tell me what bothers you about that. And he said, what bothers me is the person who God has used the most to help me with my faith. Turns out he doesn't believe anything. He just shows up wherever he is and fits right in. And, um, and, and that's, that's, I said, man, I'm, I'm not really following you here. He said, um, he said, well, do you agree with the seven day Adventist? And I said, man, I gotta be honest. I never considered once if I agreed with them. I, I, I like them. They, they believe in Jesus. They're nice to their communities. Uh, they're generous people. Um, what's there not to agree with? And he said, Shane, they worship on Saturday. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but that's not the most important. That's, that's not the most dangerous thing about a seven day Adventist. 
the, the most dangerous thing about a seven day Adventist is that they're vegans. Like, <laughs> like, like, like I, w- I was there for five days. I did six sessions and ate 70,000 grams of fiber. Rob, I, I frankly got tired of going to the toilet, to be honest with yeah. you. And, and it's, you know, I, I, Rob, I ate a brownie made of vegetables. Oh, I made a, okay. I ate a brownie made, and I got to be honest, got to be honest, tasted pretty good, to be fair. Okay. And so, and so the, the, but, but his point of view is, is a symptom of a problem, which is that the only people that should be accepted in our world are people that we fully agree with or affirm. Well, that, yeah. that would be that that would be a pretty bad world, and I think well, it's a very seems... small world, isn't it? Then it sh- your world shrinks to a whole lot of people who are exactly like you. It's a monotony like... instead of polyphony, oh, right? So, yeah. so uh, yeah, so so when when everything in your world is one sound, one voice, um, you can't wonder why you're depressed. There's no there's no flavor at all to your to 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 your salad. And so the the question in that tension is 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 whose job is it to be the source of conviction and change? And in, in, in my point of view, I think that when we have tried to be the source of conviction, that we're not good at it. A- at very best, it comes off not nice. Um, that, that, uh, that, that God has to be the only source of conviction and change. And our job is to facilitate and celebrate anyone's next yes when God nudges them. Um, and so, so the first tension is image bearer or object. Um, the second tension is acceptance versus um, an affirmation. The third one, I think this one's really important, is the tension between accepting a person and understanding their story. I think when when we confuse those things, um, we we lead to some pretty bad tonage, uh, some pretty bad things. Um, I'll give you an example from about something I know about. Um, uh, from from racism in America. Okay, so um, I, I I'm not speaking at all to Australia or New Zealand or South Africa. Or anybody else? That I'm not speaking about that specific situation because I don't know enough to speak that intelligently about it. But I do know enough about American racism to speak to it. And um, and one uh, one not the whole issue, but one of the issues with racism in America are not overt racist, which of course there are. Um, it's the bigger problem is, is good hearted white people who don't think they're racist. And the reason they don't think they're racist is because they fully accept people of color and they do. But then when you talk to them, they don't understand the narratives, right? So, so what they've done is they've removed understanding from the equation of what acceptance means and to accept without understanding taints the acceptance like if you if if you told christy look i'm a little tired of having this conversation i just want you to know i love you i fully accept you but i don't understand a word coming out of your mouth well yeah that would not go down well yeah no because because actually she'd probably rather you understand and then make an informed choice than she would want you to just throw understanding out the window and and i as a side point i think that that's part of the beauty of the incarnation was, I mean, God's God. He could have just accepted whoever he liked. That I mean, that's he could do what he wants. Um, but but the incarnation shows us that ex- accepting humans was not the ultimate goal. It, it was actually engaging in their broken story to understand the story. It's like it's like so, so. No human being could ever say to God, "You don't get it. You don't get it." 
um, I, I, I had to die. Mm. Um, and, you know, and so it's, it's, it's that, um, I like, so as an example, um, um, I, I had a chat with, um, uh, a very good hearted, non-racist white person in their seventies in America. And, um, this person, no chance that they're like an overt white sheet racist. Uh, it's, 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 it's not that at all. Um, it, uh, but when I got to speaking to them, they were asking me, they said, look, we really respect you. Like, why are the, why are the, the, the black people, why are they overreacting to X, Y, Z? And, um, and, and I, I know this person's heart. They, 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 truly do accept black people. But when I asked them, hey, tell me what happened in your heart with what happened to Emmett Till. Th th this person was like, that rings a bell. What, what happened to Emmett Till? And you're going, that happened in your lifetime. Or, or, or Walter McMillan, who was framed and spent years on death row before he was exonerated. Um, and the sheriff that framed him is still the sheriff today um, because sheriffs are elected. Um, uh, Emmett Till, if you don't know the story, uh, was uh, a 14 year old that was um, beaten to death. He was kidnapped out of his uncle's house in Money, Mississippi and beaten to death by these white guys. And they were arrested. But because it was an all white jury, they were acquitted in less than 10 minutes. And then uh, and then they were paid to tell the story of how they did it by a magazine, because in America, you can't be tried for the same crime twice. Um, so the, the lack of understanding of the narratives actually taints the acceptance. And I think that's true when, when it comes to sexuality. Um, there's this brilliant, in my opinion, uh, brilliant uh, insight in, in a book in the Bible called Lamentations, which uh, which frankly in our circles don't get a whole, that, that book doesn't get a lot of playtime. Um, it's not, <laughs> it's not a, it's, it's not a crowd building kind of uh, poem, but it's actually um, just a, a, a quick, education on the basics of it. It's five poems. Um, the first two are 22 verses, the second, the last two are 22 verses, and the middle one is 66 verses. So it's this perfect chiastic symmetry on how to think about, how to think about suffering. And uh, the, the, the obvious absence in this book is, is God. Uh, God is silent. Uh, God's being blamed, and then God stays silent. Uh, amongst being blamed, like sort of like Jesus that way, like they were accusing Jesus and he just um, stayed silent. There's a lot of wisdom in that too. Um, and, uh, and, and so the, what ultimately happens in the, in the story is the woman gets blamed, which I, I know I get, I get it. So, yeah. so there's this, there's this, hu there's this humanization. So there's this, there's three characters. There's a narrator who is like this emotionless sort of, I just tell the facts person. Um, and then there's this lady, and the lady is the humanization of the city of Jerusalem after it had been ransacked by Nebuchadnezzar. And then later in the story, there's a man and the man would be the humanization of the temple system or the priestly system, or some say Jeremiah himself, either way. Right. And so, um, and, and the poem starts with this nine verse rant about just picture a news reporter going, this has happened. This has happened. This has happened. Oh, how bad the city looks. There used to be people here. Now there's not people here. The enemies have taken over. Um, they've raped us to death. Um, she's been raped to death. There's this, there's this, this just fact, 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 fact. And then toward the end of the news commentators facts, 
he uh, gives his opinion now on why. And he says, well, it's obvious why that the woman committed adultery. Um, the city had other lovers and the other lovers promised they'd be there for her. And now they're nowhere to be found. Um, and it's, it's, it's sad, but let's just call it what it is. We don't mince words around here. We speak the truth. Right. And then, and then he, he says what might be the most vulgar sentence in the whole Bible. I, I haven't scoured the whole Bible looking for vulgarities, but it's pretty vulgar in, in, in Lamentations 1, 9. This is a direct quote. It says, quote, her uncleanness was in her skirt. Like, he said pretty uh, blunt, isn't it? The English cleaned that up. Like he, he's, yeah. he's saying yeah. she has a dirty lady part. Right? And, um, and so he essentially don't act like you didn't commit adultery. Your uncleanness is up your skirt. And it's at that point where the lady speaks up. She hasn't said a word till now. And then she just says, oh, oh Lord, behold my affliction. Um, for the enemy has triumphed. And then for the next chapter and a half, I think there's nine requests for him to look. Look at my distress. Look at my despair. Look at my pain. Um, one sentence even says, God made us eat our own babies, which was like bizarre. Um but but her 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 thing with the narrator is I I I'm not asking you for your advice I'm not asking you for your wisdom I, I'm just I, I'm not asking for you to create a poorly constructed meme to give me a Bible verse that will fix every problem I've ever had I'm not asking for that I, I'm I'm asking for you to look 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 chapter and a half and then a chapter and a half later so this is kind of hard to see unless you're reading it all in one sitting. A chapter and a half later, the narrator speaks back up and he changes his tone. And here's what he says. This is, quote, Lamentations 2.13, quote, um, what can I say for you? Uh, to whom can I compare you to, O daughter of Jerusalem? That's that's sounding different. Your mm -hmm. cleanness is up your skirt to then what can I liken to you that I may restore comfort to you, O virgin daughter? So he he goes from your uncleanness is up your skirt to how can I restore comfort to you, O virgin daughter? Beautiful. Um, and that is a tonal shift that I think is critical, essential to a helping relationship. Um, it is driven by empathy, not knowledge. Um, and I think when it comes to the world around us, um, particularly around the, the topic of sex, there's been enough pain. And as Lamentation says, ruin is vast as the sea. Um, there's been enough pain in people's stories that um, before we bark at someone uh, weaponizing a scripture, maybe we ought to take a second and look, see their story, look, look at their pain. Uh, otherwise, even if, even if someone's telling the truth, if it sounds like your uncleanness is up your skirt, um, that is missing the point and fundamentally different than um, how can I restore comfort to you, a virgin daughter? You know, people, people ask me occasionally, Rob, they'll say, well, when do you confront? Like, like when, when do you actually take the time and confront people? And what, what's the, what's the litmus test for that? And I, I think, I think the one of the litmus tests is, is not considering what if they reject your confrontation, but what if they say yes? What if they say, holy smokes, you're right. 
I need to sort this out. I just have not one clue where to, st- would you walk me through the process of what restoring the situation would look like? And then at that point, if you're like, well, I'm busy, I don't like, yeah, well, that's right. well, yeah. correct. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, so, so one of the things I consider before I confront is, is if they, res- if they responded to my loving confrontation with, I need help, but I don't know where to start. If I'm not willing to do that, I probably should shut up and, and let someone else, you you know, be the person to, to walk them through that because otherwise I'm just ranting. Yeah. I love what you're saying because, and I tell this to our church regularly, we need to sit with people and hear their stories. What's life like for you? It's so easy just to glibly point the finger Universe and move on with life. That doesn't lead to change. And so, yeah, I've said that to daughters at different times when they've, especially when they were at school and they would, you know, they'd come home and someone at school was acting in a way that was frustrating. And I would invariably say, so I wonder what's going on in their world at the moment. Yeah. And, yeah. and sit and listen, get to know, get to know them. This is wonderful, yeah. Shane. We're going to take a quick break at this point and uh, yeah. we'll be back with more in just a moment. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. I was on staff at, at, at a church and one of the staff people uh, went through a marriage failure. Um, and uh, and the marriage failure was due to um, the spouse <clears throat> had engaged in the only word I could, it would be horrendous, dangerous behavior, um, uh, like multiple times. And, but because, because she had children, she didn't want to give full disclosure to everybody as to what happened because the kid didn't, the kids didn't need to know all that. And, and so, uh, the board of the church knew and kept it quiet and, and kept and then of course there was church people you know you don't care about marriage you you're a covenant breaker and but if they would have taken the time to to know the details which they could not know um the the the, the judgment would be different it'd be kind of like if i'm let, let's say if you were let's say if you were on a, a this would be insane but um if you were on a bus uh to sydney um and and let's say there were let's say there were three children, um, eight, six, and four on the bus, and they're running up and down the aisles, and they're throwing food, and they're just being basically disruptive. We, judgments would automatically start coming into your head. And to be fair, plank in my eye, it would come in my head faster than yours because you have children. And and so the, the, these rambunctious children would just annoy me, and they're they're acting like just they're just acting like crazy people and they're throwing food and your judge, my judgment would immediately go, where is the parent? Like where's, and then, and then you kind of look around, you notice the parent, the parent, the dad sitting there aloof, you know, he's like looking at his phone. 
he's like letting them just act insane. And then, then of course, people around you start, there gets to be a gang on effect, like, <clears throat> sir, uh, uh, control. Like, and then finally someone speaks up and someone says, excuse me, sir, your children are acting insane. Control your kids. Like, what is your problem? Right. And then, then the guy, the guy goes, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm just lost in my head. Um, uh, oh, their mom just died and, um, we just came from her funeral and I can't think straight. I'm like, what am I going to do? Um, and they're hurt. I, I'm sorry. They bothered you. Um, please forgive us. And then he, well, suddenly the t same actions, same, it's like the, the judgment actually is sound in the terms of they were acting how they shouldn't have acted. But then because you have more information now, now the action and the tone shifts. Now everybody in the bus would be, um, you know, getting them around to play games and um, yeah. somebody would go sit by the guy and say, look, sorry. You know, it's, it's just uh, information changes that. Yeah. 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 So, so true. The, the, so the fourth, the fourth tension is the sacred versus the profane. So um, um, sacred, a lot of times what people have a problem with, with in terms of sex is confusing something that's sacred with something that's profane. Now, let me, let me be clear about this because words matter less than how people picture words working. I don't, when I say profane, I don't mean wrong. What I mean is, is something that's meant to be sacred or something that's meant to be holy or just, just for you gets put out in public for everybody. It's, it's uh, something that is sacred gets treated as if it's common. Um, and so, so the Jewish people, again, I would surrender to tell on this. Um, they, they have, um, they have this beautiful picture at a wedding called a chuppah. And it, it's just this covering of God's presence. And then there were, the second hoopah was over the marriage bed in the ancient world. And, and the idea is, is that your, your sexuality is, is meant to be under the hoopah. And if there's, if there's too many people allowed in the hoopah, um, uh, then it, 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 taints, uh, it taints the sacredness of what's under it. Um, and so, so there's a lot of examples. This the most obvious one is adulteries and things like where lots of people are under the same hoopah. But this, this could be, th this, this could be anything. This is why um, the the most the the most genitality sort of places, or let's say the most erotic places, are often the least sexual. So, as an example, if if uh, if you were gonna if you went to the red light district in Amsterdam. Um, and there's streets that, that, and they're, and they're, the streets are blocked by preference. So, you know, body size, color of skin, this kind of thing. Wow. And, and, and yeah, and, um, I, I've, I spoke in Amsterdam once and the pastor there took me there just to let me see it. Um, and it wasn't what I thought. I mean, there's kids walking around there's, you know, but these, these girls are in these windows, um, in basically bathing suits. Um, and you know, street one might be Scandinavian girls of a certain build. Uh, street two might be Asian. Street three might be African. Whatever the case may be, and um, and it's an incredibly erotic sort of place. But it's it's definitely not sexual. 
um, the, there's a difference between eroticism and, and sexuality because there's a way that you can, you can engage in something erotic, but when you leave it, you feel less connected than ever before, which is fundamentally not sexual, right? So, because yeah. sex is restoring reconnection. And that's what happens when something that is best explored in the world of the sacred gets profaned. It, it, gets, it gets put out in front uh, of, of, of everybody. And then too many people are in your sacred space. Like, I, like I, I've known you and Christy for years, and we've had some great conversations, but certainly there are things in your and Christy's life that's just between you two. Yeah. And, and should be, and, and you guys might have like a code around, like um, a certain way of speaking about it. Um, that, that does it. But, but what, what, think about what happens. And, and more often than not, it's the man that breaks this because he thinks he's being funny. He's not being malicious. He thinks he's being funny. And, and he'll tell a story to his friends about his wife that, and if the wife's sitting there, she's thinking, what? You're not supposed to be sharing that. Like it's, yeah. it, and, and then the guy's like, but it's the truth. It's not wrong. Yeah, but it, it's not wrong, but it's, it's just profane. It's taking something I thought was under our hoopa and yeah. putting it out in, in, in public. And we, we've both we've both been in small groups enough to see that happen awkwardly. Um, yes, you know uh, enough, and more often than not, it, it 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 is the man because there are certain things, and specifically around sex, in general, the details of our sex lives belong in private. Yes, um, I do. Yeah. They, they they they're just when it comes out in public, even if it's not wrong, it's yuck so like even if you took um if if let's say a youth pastor is married and has been married for six years and the youth pastor and his wife take five 14 year olds to coffee at maccas and um and they share the details of their sex life with these 14 year olds well uh and then, and then it, somebody says something, and then they get pulled in, and 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 you say to them, "What are you? You're like what? We're married. We're monogamous. We're uh, um, we we are committed. Um, we're telling them about how beautiful this can be, right? And you're like, yeah, but that that's profane because you took something that is meant to be private and you put it out for everybody to see in public." And yeah. that becomes a problem. So that's that's the fourth tension. The fifth tension, I think, is creation versus anti-creation. And what I mean by that is is it, the creation narratives. Um, and when I'm let, let me define that. Um, creation is what happens when God engages our broken chaos and wraps Himself in our story to make a better narrative out of that story. That's creation, or better, new creation. And or you could say resurrection or if or or uh, if, if you want revival, um, whatever the case may be. This is when God um, God engages a broken, chaotic narrative and makes a better story out of that narrative. And, and creation works one way. It goes from disorder to order, from chaos to new creation. Um, it goes it goes from broken to whole. And so the, the question I think that's better than 
is it right or wrong? Can I go to heaven when I die? I think it's, does my sexual behavior, if extended into perpetuity, does it honor the image bearer or object? Or does it lead, here's another question, does my sexual behavior lead me to a creation experience or a disordered anti-creation experience? So does my, does my sexual behavior, does it, travel the state of my life in the wrong direction. I'm going to more disorder, more pain, more chaos, more confusion, or am I going towards wholeness, new creation, fresh start, second chances, that kind of thing. And I think that's a good way. That's, that's a, that's a better way. Image bear an object and creation, anti-creation are better filters for how we think about our sexual behavior. Yeah, they are. And and by creation, you're not just referring to the ability to have kids, are you? Not Oh no, no. Procreate. We're talking about a, No, that's procreate. It's it's yeah. it's actually yeah, no. It's it's actually um when I say creation in this context, I'm saying um God's willingness to engage um our chaos and broken story to make a new creation uh um ordered story out of it. And when we are surrendered to that, um, our behavior in every area of our life, whether it be food or sex or how we treat our neighbors or whatever, all of our behaviors should honor the image bearing the person and not objectify them. And all of our behaviors should be leading towards, towards order, not disorder, towards peace, not chaos. And, um, and or the, as the Jewish people would call it, shalom. Yeah. 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 Nothing missing, nothing broken. Correct. Um, yeah. The sixth tension is personal freedom for the sake of rights versus humility for the sake of the whole. Um, I think this is a, a, a critical, um, a critical thing in Romans 14 and 15 in particular, where Paul is talking about the nature of being able to accept people and live in peace that don't necessarily see eye to eye with us. That, Part of that is um, is preferring in humility, preferring the other person. It's like, well, um, I I have a right to do something, but if I engage in that just for the sake of doing it, it's going to hurt the whole. So I'm going to humble myself for the sake of the whole. Um, and I think I, I think this this kind of mixes with the sacred profane thing that sometimes sometimes things just belong. Um, in private, I think I think if we navigate those six tensions, um, that that's that that can create a, a better story, because I, I'll, I'll uh, which leads me to Paul in First Corinthians. Um, so Paul deals with what he calls sexual immorality in First Corinthians six. So there's two things going on here. Um, one is uh, is there there was a saying in Corinth, um, and I read this in. I want to say it was Tom Holland's book Dominion, but to 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 hire a prostitute in Corinth, um, you would say food for the stomach, the stomach for food, right? So essentially, it was a metaphor that my drives are going to get satiated one way or the other. It may as well be with you. And the prostitutes in Corinth were not voluntary. These uh, they were nine layered class systems, and these were underclassed people who were forced to work in these situations. And, and actually, uh, in, in the Roman Empire, the wives loved the brothels because 
there was no birth control. Soap was not really a thing. And so um, they, they, it, it was illegal in the Roman empire to sleep with someone else's wife or to commit adultery. Um, and the reason is, is because it would violate the peace of Rome. You'd have this clan and this clan fighting. Um, and, but brothels, and you, you should, you should see some of the ruins of them, man. Some of the pictures, it was basically like a, <clears throat> like the brothels in Pompeii were, were, were basically like, um, Chinese restaurants. You, like you, you walk in and, um, you had body type, position, how many, right? So you might say, I want a number three with a number seven and a number 10, right? Wow. And, 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 and the order was, well, food for the, the, the excuse was, well, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. That's first. Second, in Paul's letters, we have to keep in mind, there's a literary device called diatribe that's in play in all of them. And diatribe, this isn't a hermeneutics lesson, but um, what we got, got to talk about it. Like, diatribe is in, in letters, if he's taking on an opponent, he has to clearly articulate the view of the opponent and then respond. So he does this all the time. Um, First Corinthians 11, which was the famous passage that uh, people have used to beat up women, uh, like that yeah. women were women were made for man, but man was made for God and this and that. But if you just keep reading two sentences, Paul says, nevertheless, I say in Christ, there's no difference, but right. So he's articulating the voice of an opponent and then responding, um, which is really problematic. If you've been told your whole life that God wrote the whole Bible. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. like, like every word in there is God. It's like, mm, no, sometimes there's quoting an enemy. Um, yeah. Well, Joe, you've got um, Satan speaking and three miserable comforters, yeah. Right, right. And and then, well, in the Gospels, um, there was a group of people who said Jesus was full of Beelzebub. You know, so sometimes the Bible's just telling you what happened. And then in letters in particular, because Paul's not there, he's having to respond to this. And so here's here's what he says. Um, This is 1 Corinthians 6. Um, I, I, I have the right to do anything you say. So he's quoting their point of view, right? Yeah. Uh, but not everything's beneficial, which is his response. Like, I, and I, and how how wise is that? Like, getting caught in the is it right or is it wrong field, I think, risk a big thing. And and that's 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 the oldest lie told in the Bible, and it's told by a talking snake. It's a pretty big lie because there, there's a lot of things that aren't wrong, but they're not wise. They're not beneficial, right? Um, I have the right to do anything there. He's quoting them, um, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, that's his response. Um, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. In other words, it really doesn't matter if my if my drives are going to be satiated one way or the other and the whole thing, all of us die. What difference does it make? That was their point of view. And and here's Paul's response. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. There's that resurrection and will raise you also. Um, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I, I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Um, never. I, and I want to be clear about this. Paul's not anti the prostitute here. He would have been very anti-sex slavery. Um, yes. he's, he's, he's actually attacking the modern prostitution system by attacking the Johns would be our yeah. vernacular um yeah. uh, do, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body for it is said the two will become one flesh but whoever 
is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Uh, flee sexual immorality. Um, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Um, do you not know that your bodies are the temple, the Holy Spirit, who, who is in you, wh whom you have received from God? Um, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Uh, and then here's his application, to honor God with your body. And so, so the idea... The, the, the idea that that we can't control our sexuality or our, our sexual behavior um, is a better way to say that. The idea we can't control our sexual behavior is not the voice of realism. Um, it's the voice of despair. Like, are we all just doomed to food for the stomach, the stomach food, like, like, like whatever. Um, um, in, in, and I, again, that brings me back to a question, are we moving towards greater chaos or greater order? Um, and I think I, I think there's three basic narratives, and then there's some solutions um, that that we need to talk about. Um, one is that there's three basic narratives people live in with with their with, with their sexual behavior. One is um, is called erotic play, and erotic play is food for the stomach, the stomach for food. I'm going out. Um, my my basic lust and desires are going to get fulfilled one way or the other. May as well be with you. Um, it's it's erotic play. But but the, the problem with erotic play is it, it it appears more sexual than other expressions of sexuality, but it's decidedly less sexual. Because when you engage in erotic play, you're engaging in um, in something that fundamentally pronounces your disconnection after it's over. It's just... Like, like there's a way, there, yeah, like there, there's a way that, um, well, if you go to the right bar and wait long enough, um, there's a way you could engage in sexual behavior every night this week with a different person. Um, um, and, um, you know, take, take all morality and all that, set it to the side. There's a way to do that. And even if you're an atheist where there's no, where, where if you, if you think, ah, oh, food for stomach, stomach for food. At, at, that's fine. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that is decidedly less sexuality and more genitality, because what it will do is it makes you more aware of where you're disconnected and it produces a primary fear of rejection. And 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 that's that's that. And then and then the second the second narrative is a step, a step towards more order, which is would be like um, um, I don't know what the word would be for, it, but like a committed um committed like committed friendship or committed uh to intimate connection let's let's call it that way and that's monogamous it's one person with another person and um and the goal is to express a feeling of connection with someone you truly love um there's freedom of expression with consent with no fear of shaming um uh, now, freedom of response in this narrative is really important because the other person has to be free to act within their own will um, and uh, without any fear of being ashamed on the Internet. Um, and there's there's a lot of good in that narrative. Um, and it's fundamentally a better narrative than erotic play. Um, and th but then the third narrative would be uh, would be covenant promise, um, uh, covenant promise. Um, and I think this is important to be said because I think this is a plank in our eye. Um, <clears throat> covenant promise does not guarantee a healthy sexuality. It 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 it, it doesn't. That, um, I was told when I was a kid that you know if you just wait and then you get married, um, that's a magic elixir that it all just comes together. And um and and that that was a lie. I mean I I I get asked occasionally, um 
because let's be fair in the Bible, in the, in the Bible, the average age of marriage was like 13. Like, Mm -hmm. like you you had your first period and then within five or six weeks, it was organized for you, uh, for you to be married to some person from another tribe for sugar and the promise of defense and whatever the case may be. Um, And so when the average age of marriage is 31, uh, you can understand why, why, why the rules sort of change. Um, I was, this is a funny story. I was, uh, I was in Amsterdam and I was doing a relationship seminar kind of thing. And they, they didn't, and I actually, I haven't mentioned this yet, but for your viewers who might not know my master's degrees in clinical psychology in the area of sex. So I have a, Academic you know what you're talking about here. Well, kind of. And yeah. so in theory, I do, Rob. In practice, pretty much <laughs> crap. But in theory, I'm the best. Um, and so and so there was um, there was this 47-ish um, year old lady. Now, they, they didn't do it like I, I, I would have done it. Like they did a married session and a single session in a different room and then a married Q&A and a singles Q&A. And, and then there was another speaker and we were flip-flopping. And, um, man, there was like six married couples and there was like 120 single people. (laughs) Like it was because marriage is starting to go away in Europe. And, and so in the singles Q and a, this lady in her mid to late forties said, look, I'm, I'm new to faith. Um, let me define that six weeks ago, I surrendered my life to Jesus. Um, and, um, Okay, so so she's one of these people that wouldn't have any emotional connection to whatever Bible verse, you know, somebody would be using. She said, and look, no one's saying this, but it's certainly being intimated uh, that I should wait to have sex until I'm married again. And so I just said, well, what's your question? She said, my question is, am I the only one here that thinks, and he, she used an obscenity, which I won't use. She said, do I, am I the only one here that thinks that's dumb as crap? And um, she said, follow me here. She said, marriage is designed by law to cost you half your things if it doesn't make it to 85 years old. Um, why would anybody risk half their net worth with someone who could be a pervert? They could be hooked on porn. And spoiler alert, if you ask them if they're a pervert or if they're hooked on porn, they tell you no. The only way to know is to try. And then, you know, based on how they're acting, she said, why would you make a 40 something year decision without knowing those things? That just sounds dumb. (laughs) So the whole room sat up, you know, like, and think about all the things I'm juggling live. Um, My ultimate priority is that she continues with her faith in Jesus, regardless of what I'm fixing to say. Right. Like, and, and I told her that I said, look, what I'm fixing to say, regardless of it, there's no vacancy in, in God's work in your heart. You keep journey with Jesus, no matter what I'm fixing to say. Um, and, and the way I went through it with her was I just said, look, um, uh, when you have if you introduce sex too early, um, a enzyme is released in your brain uh, called oxytocin. And um, it blinds you to the obvious character flaws that you'll have to deal with um, later. And so this is why the biggest clump of divorces is at seven years, because at five years, you can't out sex what bothers you about them. 
So, right. right. So, so you've yeah. seen this a hundred times, like yeah. they come to your office and they're like, this isn't the man I married, you know? And you're like, yeah, he is. He yeah, was a slob back is. then, a bit lazy, right. he played video games, but you he had lots of, no, but you had lots of numbing agent and yeah. you thought, oh, whatever. Yeah. You know, or this isn't the woman I married. Oh, yes, it is. You know, you know, she, she was jealous, cantankerous, possessive, didn't handle criticism well. And, you know, couldn't cook, you know, but you're like, well, there's lots of numbing agent. We'll eat out, whatever. Right. Um, and so five years into the relationship, you now have to deal with the character flaw that was exhibiting itself before, but the Novocaine was blinding you to it. And, um, and so, so she says back to me, um, well, so what you're saying is, is that I shouldn't make a 40 year decision with drugs on my brain. And I was like, Yes. And so, you know, these these uh, there are narratives that are better narratives, but I think there's a few solutions. Um, and I think the primary one primary solution that feeds into the image bearer object tension and the sacred profane tension is to to stop. I, I, let's say I say it. In, I'll, I'll use a theological word to change our thinking or to repent from the primary image we have of God in our head of being existent that that let me be clear on this god does not exist that's that's just a dumb idea and i'm not mad at anybody i know what they mean what they mean is god is real and yes amen but when someone says god exists for something to exist it has to be an object outside of you so this water bottle exists it's an object outside of me and exists to serve me actually well that's not god uh, that was every god in the roman empire um, every God in the Roman Empire was an existent God, existent buildings, existent temples, existent images, existent rituals. And so the Roman Emperor Trajan, um, I read about this in um, Unholy Allegiances by David De Silva. The Roman Emperor Trajan um, killed, uh, killed Christians and the official charge on the Roman docket in court was atheism. And, th and the reason is, is the Roman governors would ask the Christians, where does your God exist? And the Christian answer was like, in other words, where's this temple? Where's his image? Where, where are people giving offerings so we can get our cut, right? And the Christian response to that was our God does not exist. Our, our God indwells or insists. And so they killed him for atheism. And, and so the, the, the question would be, okay, if the whole world thought about God that way, how would that make the world a better place? How does that help our sexuality? How does that help our sexual behavior? How, how does that, how does that do that? Well, an existent God can choose sides. I prefer men instead of women. I prefer whites instead of blacks. I prefer the rich instead of the poor. An existent God can do that. But not an indwelling spirit. If there's one Christ holding the whole thing together, then there's no such thing as Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, ended the class systems. There's no, you can't, you can't treat someone who's not like you as less than you without violating the spirit of Christ that's holding the whole thing together. And imagine the implications of just that one principle to all of our lives in terms of how we treat people, especially our sexuality. Awesome. That's a mic drop moment right there. Hmm. I think Beautiful. so. I think, I think that's a big solution. I think it leads to better questions like image bearer object, unity or division. Does, does, does the way I speak act behave does it lead to more unity or more division 
Um, does it lead to more order or more disorder and confusion? Does it lead to chaos or, or does it lead um, to new creation? I think, um, I think, you know, we need a better definition of sex. Um, you know, sex is what happens between two people involved in physical pleasure or sex is all the ways we strive to reconnect with our world, each other and God. Um, because healthy sex um, involves boundaries, consent, participation. Um, and any time we're participating with restoring dignity to any person anywhere. In, in, in that sense, some of the most sexual people you know are the celibates. They're the ones who have foregone the physical pleasure part of it to be fully engaged uh, with their world and make their world a better place. Um, I think there's some better questions we should be asking, like, is it wise? Is it useful? Does it restore dignity? Is it helpful? What do I become if I continue down the path um, that I'm on? And none of this gets accomplished, Rob, without creating a shame-free space where people can be honest about their drive. Like if, if, if we make an analogy to food here, I, I was told when I was a teenager to be a sexual anorexic. Just deny it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and sexual anorexics are dangerous um, because it's, it lacks authenticity and you don't know what they're hiding. Um, now, sexual gluttons are dangerous. <laughs> like I just food for the stomach, the stomach for food, um, whatever. And then, of course, there's sexual bulimics who binge and purge and th that. But, but I think we can overcome a lot of that by creating shame free space where people can be honest about their drive uh, to help people redirect their their sexual energy in much healthier ways to help them reconnect, to honor the non-existent, rather insistent, indwelling spirit of Christ that is holding the whole thing together, renewing the whole story together, reconciling the whole story. And the question is, is will we participate with that? And sex is only part of that story. So true. So true. What you've given us, Shane, is a wonderful framework. I love the questions, the pictures that you can think through. And, and in my mind, it, that actually leads to purity. Um, yes. much more than don't do it or how far can I go? Not very far. And, you know, when I look at the churches that have preached that, um, over the process of time, you hear about abuse and broken relationships and all of this, you know, pedophilia, all sorts of stuff going on yeah. versus when what you're talking about actually leads us to think things through and to make a choice uh, to Correct. live a life that is pleasing to the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's wonderful. Mate, thank you so much for your time. It's been great, as always. Thanks, Rob. You're a great conversation partner. I love this. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please get in touch with us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page or email connect at baysidechurch.com.au. Join us next week when Pastor Rob does a deep dive into Halloween. All that and more on next week's episode of Digging Deeper.